Hey guys, Kate here with the Primitive Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we have Kathy Crockett. Kathy Crockett uh, was a professor at Lubbock Christian University for over 20 years, taught management and leadership and marketing classes. As you hear her talk in the podcast, you can hear she has really great experience in leadership and tremendous amounts of knowledge to share. So I know you're going to enjoy this one. Lots of really, really great wisdom shared in this podcast. And thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Kathy, welcome to the Primitive Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. I, I've kind of just been a casual observer of your leadership over the years, mainly through you know LinkedIn and Facebook and things like that. You know, we've had a couple of past conversations, um, you know, loosely, but really excited to learn more about you and, and your leadership journey. Um, you know, on the podcast. So thank you for joining. Really appreciate it. Sure. I'm glad to be here. Tell us about your background. You know, where, where are you from? Like, you know, where, where have you been in the last 15, 20 years? And just a little bit about your work. Well, I always like to warn people ahead of time. I did go to Texas A&M, so I'm an Aggie, even okay. though I'm in Lubbock, Texas, That's where, great. you know, but I did go to grad school at Texas <laughs> okay, Tech. Okay, cool. So even um, for about 22 years, I taught business at Lubbock Christian University. And so I usually would start my classes like that saying, hey, heads up, I'm an Aggie. You still have plenty of time to drop the class if you know you're not quite sure about this. And then, of course, that opened the door to lots of teasing about football and sports and all yeah. kinds of things. So it made it a lot of fun. And so I did teach business. I taught a variety of things, marketing and leadership, primarily management as well. Okay. And I think my favorite class was current trends in business because we could just dig into all the current things in the marketplace and really talk more about those things from a leadership and management perspective. And so taught those classes for about 22 years. And then about a year ago, just kind of felt like it was time to retire. And all those years, I also did a variety of consulting work. I okay. did market feasibility studies for companies, worked with an advertising firm. I also um, have several clients. I'm an executive coach, so I would work with different leaders in that realm. And then I think one of my favorite things is creating experiences, mm -hmm. um, customized programs for companies and organizations. And I also do some leadership groups where I get uh, a leader from different industries and we come together and talk leadership and network and really learn from each other. And so I've really enjoyed that work as well. That's really cool. G give an example of, of the experience part you're talking about. Like, could you give us an example of what that looks like? That sounds fascinating. Sure. So back in 2013, I had the privilege of being in a program with Dr. John Townsend. He and Henry Cloud wrote the Boundaries books. They okay. do a lot of leadership okay. work together. People might recognize okay. them. Dr. Jones, the former president of LCU, had done that program. Then he worked it out for me to have that opportunity. Cool. He's been a mentor of mine for a long time. And so through that experience, we went once, once a month to Dallas, and there were different executives in the room. And so we had a day long with Dr. John Town. He, he works with leaders in a lot of different areas. Yeah. So I learned a lot from those other leaders. And then I thought, you know, Lubbock is my heart. I have a, a real passion, really, for just West Texas and businesses happening in West Texas and keeping talent in West Texas. And I thought, you know, sometimes it's difficult to travel and go other places. So mm -hmm. what what kind of premier type training and experience because we offer here in Lubbock. And so I gave it a go and we did our first one in 2014 and it actually was um, only women, but we'd done co-ed groups as well. And then I did another one, kind of relaunched it. My kids were in high school. And so you talked about seasons. Um, we were visiting about that before we started. And I had a season where I knew that my daughters were in high school and they were very involved in sports and I wanted to be there. And yeah. I knew I wasn't, I wish that a measure of being a good mom was how many events you attend. I wish that was the only measure that counted, you know. So I knew that was not really the only reason, but I wanted to be there. 
And so I almost intentionally cut back on my speaking engagements and different types of work I was doing so that I could really lean in. It's almost like a swivel, you know, we kind of, I think we all know by now there's no such thing as balance. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you talk yeah, about a limit balanced life, yeah. you're like, yeah, that's not the word. Yeah. But I kind of like to envision it like a swivel, like a stool that swivels different ways. And sometimes mm-hmm. you intentionally lean in. So we did our first group in 2014, and I didn't launch it again until 2019 because I kind of stepped back and enjoyed that part of my life. And so last fall, we started another one. And an example of, we have someone who is in education, CEOs of a healthcare institution, um, a superintendent of a school. We have CEO of different medical practices, real estate agents, nonprofit CEOs, um, someone who even is involved with Chick-fil-A. I mean, so it's a great, rich variety of different people from different industries. And so we come together and we just, um, we have case studies. They bring, like we become each other's personal board of directors. That's cool. And so we help each other with different kind of consulting sort of a little bit with each other. But I think the magic of it is, and then I bring leadership content, but I think the magic of it that I like, I use that word a little loosely, but it's just fun to see how, what happens when you get that many high caliber people in a room and how they interact with each other and meet each other. They become friends with each other they've never met before. So that's really a unique experience that I've especially become intrigued by and just watching the leaders really soak up the friendship and the relationships with the other leaders because I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Cade, but sometimes leadership can be a little lonely because the buck stops with you and maybe you know a lot of confidential stuff you maybe can't share or sometimes there's pressure involved. You know, you're kind of the one creating the vision and going for it. You have a great team around you, of course. Yet sometimes there's just harder days than others. So it's kind of nice to be with other people like-minded who kind of know what that experience feels like to interact. That's really cool. Uh, yeah, there, there, there certainly are those moments. Uh, yeah, there, there certainly can be. You, usually for, for me, it's like when uh, there's an upset client or like an employee issue, you know, a teammate issue. Um, but around Primitive, we're really lucky because we have some phenomenal, leader, uh, phenomenal leaders like Jess and Heather and Annie and you know, others that really carry that burden, but you're right, it, it can be lonely. And it is fun, you know, when you get a bunch of really great people in a room, like how it can just kind of take a life of its own and, and everyone starts learning from each other. And I think magic is an appropriate word for it. Did you grow up in West Texas? actually did. I went to New Deal High School. Okay. So if anybody's from West Texas, you drive out awesome. the interstate to yes. the airport, you see the big green yeah. mighty lions. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that's where I grew up. Awesome. My, my mom uh, is basketball coach my whole life. And her uh, first or second coaching gig, I think it was actually her first head coaching, uh, her he- first head coach opportunity was in New Deal. So she was there a couple of years. And um, so that's cool. Uh, who knew we were connected in that, in that way? I don't even know if I was born, actually. So maybe I can't <laughs> take, take that. But anyway, so that's great. How do you see the role of a leader? You know, like when you think of leadership, whether it's your own leadership, leaders you've observed uh, in your work, what do you see the role of a leader? What do you think their primary responsibility is in an organization? Like what, what kind of things come to your mind when you think of that? You know, that's a great question. And part of what I've done in the past is leader, the word leader is so big. You know, we all have different dictionaries in our minds of what, what is the definition of a leader. And so when you ask that question, you may have in your mind, okay, the leader in my mind, I'm thinking of like the CEO or the person with the title. And when I hear the word leader, I just want to ask so many more questions just about that word. I'm like, well, tell me more about what you mean about leader. Tell me more about what you mean about role. Because those two words can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. So I think that Andy Stanley is a speaker that lots of people know about. He's a wonderful speaker and runs a very large organization. And um, he talks about when things get really busy and overwhelming, 
he has a, like a note card in his desk that's like laminated and he pulls it out multiple times a week and he goes, okay, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And what is my role? And he believes from his perspective as a leader, he wants to be really clear on those three things. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? And what is my role? And so when you think about what is my role as a leader, I think there's a lot of context involved with that. I think sometimes the strongest leaders are the greatest followers. I think they know that perhaps they do have positional power with the title, but they also probably, hopefully, have influential power. Hopefully people might follow them even if they didn't have the title because of the way they take care of their people and therefore they're good and they're creating a really great vision that, that people want to follow and struggle to get to. And so as far as your role, I think, again, it depends on the hour, maybe even yeah. the minute. It's a really, really great point. So let, let's, let's, uh, let's recouch the question. So let's, let's answer it. Let, let you answer it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> I just get asked the questions. Uh, two, two ways. So let's, let's, think about a, let's think about a leader in an organization who is not the main leader. So it, it could be a leader of a department. It could, it could be just a regular teammate, right? Uh, because you raise a really great point. Like in, in some way, everyone's a leader. And so what do you really mean by leader? So knowing that, let's be general here. So one would be the, the, the not the head leader, not the CEO, not maybe not even the COO, but just someone in the organization who's working in there, trying to add value. And, and so let's talk about maybe uh, what, what, what their role looks like or, or what, you, what you think about in terms of their leadership and how they should even think about leadership or ways they could think about leadership. And then the second one is let's think of someone who's leading an organization like a CEO. So now take a stab at one of those <laughs> two things, okay? Okay, no, great question. So I will start with kind of the mid-level manager, perhaps, or a leader that may not have a lot of direct reports, yet they have responsibilities. So what's interesting about that is often people don't see themselves as a leader, maybe. They kind of think, well, I'm just part of this organization and it's someone else's job to make the decisions or you know, I'm just following what they say to do. And they may not even necessarily realize they have so much ownership and they are a huge piece of the puzzle. I would tell students all the time, you know, it's, I'm the teacher in this class, but you're very much a part of how great mm -hmm. this is going to go. We all are in this together. And so I would hope that a mid-level manager or someone who may not have, you know, an executive title necessarily would very much be open to the idea that I have ideas. I have a voice. Um, you want to use it appropriately, of course, but you don't want to hold back yeah. ideas or things like that because some of the most innovative ideas for companies come from people maybe more on the front lines or who may be more in contact with clients or who may be in a part of the... Because the CEO and CEO don't always have that luxury and they need people to give them feedback. Yeah. And that's sometimes hard to do. Sometimes you can even be a little intimidated by the title or they're my boss, I don't want to make them mad, so I don't want to necessarily give them this feedback or something that I'm seeing but I would hope as a CEO, you've created an environment where people can give you that feedback. Yeah. And so another thing that's interesting to think about in organizations, recently I heard a speaker mention that there are kind of three types of people in an organization in general. I mean, of course, this is pretty general. He said, you know, you, you always have critics and that's not always a bad thing. You know, you'll have critics, hopefully they're reasonable critics, <laughs> unreasonable critics. Ugh, maybe we don't enjoy those as much, but if they're a reasonable critic, they may be sharing something that's a blind spot for you. Mm -hmm. Usually they're very vocal, but they're not necessarily the majority. And then he said usually about 80% of the people in your organization are what he calls bystanders. They're good followers, they're on the team, they're you know doing what they're supposed to do. And he said then another smaller percentage of people in your organization are advocates. And these are actually people, regardless of title, who are going to help you push the mission forward. 
they are in it with you. They are going to help you strategically move forward to grow, whatever that initiative is. And so I think for more of those mid-level leaders, I would hope that you would want to be an advocate. You would ask good questions. You would not only want to be a bystander fulfilling your role. You know, you do have a role. You have responsibilities. You have a job description. You have a reason you're earning the paycheck. Mm -hmm. Yet I hope you also might stretch and think about, okay, in my area, how are we going to help the overall strategic mission move forward? How can I be an advocate, not just a bystander, and be proactive about those things? Be confident, even if you're uncertain, maybe even be confident in the uncertainty of, I've got good people around me, I have a leader I respect and I think is open to feedback, and look for ways to do that. Become an advocate is what I would say, and be open to growth. You know, another speaker I really enjoy, she talks about how you learn something and you have to leap to the next learning curve. You know, a learning curve, we're all on them in different areas of our lives. As, like for me, as a mom, my daughter got married this summer, so I'm learning how to be a mother-in-law. And I'm like, that's new. <laughs> wow, I'm learning a lot. And so, and I have a son now, which is so fun. And so all of us have different roles and we're on learning curves in different roles. So as soon as you get the top of that learning curve, if you don't make the leap to the next learning curve, you're going to start going down the backside of that learning curve. And sometimes it's hard to make that leap to the next challenge or the next way to grow because it's so comfortable at the top. You've worked so hard to finally get to that top piece of that curve, and then it's time to leap to the next one. So I would hope that any leader, regardless of CEO or mid-level, would have a teachable spirit, would be open that I don't know it all. I can still grow. and there's things I can do to be an advocate for my organization. As a CEO and a COO, same thing. I want you to have a teachable spirit. I want you to be mindful of your culture, which we all, and you know, that's very common for us to all think about our culture, but have you really thought about it? In a recent conference that I was a part of and listened to virtually, it was really interesting how so many different, the theme, I don't even know if they did it intentionally. I don't know if you've ever been to different conferences or even put on conferences. I've actually put on conferences before and just told the leaders to share stories and I didn't even give them a theme, but it was fascinating how a theme kind of emerged naturally. And so this most recent conference, one of the themes that came about was how psychological safety is such a key point for innovation. And pretty much any person on the planet, either personally or as an organization, is in innovation right now. It's really a unique time in our global history where pretty much everyone at the same time has got to be thinking about innovation, whether you want to or not. You know, if you're a mom trying to figure out how to homeschool your kids because school is a meeting, or if you're a CEO thinking, okay, great, I'm not even, how am I going to pay my employees right now if we're considered non essential? You know, all these things that we've been dealing with. We're all in innovation. So isn't it interesting that as a CEO, part of your culture, you want to think about, is my organization psychologically safe or maybe a mid-level manager can speak up, can bring ideas that may sound crazy? Am I letting them fail quickly? Am I, you know, if someone fails, am I hammering them and they're fired? Or am I actually celebrating the fact that they took a risk and were trying to be innovative? What does that even look like for our culture? And so I think that's one of the most valuable things as a CEO and a COO you can do is think about what kind of culture am I creating for the people who come to work here every day? What kind of life, you know, as a CEO and CEO, you're thinking about the vision for your company. You're thinking about the vision of where we're going. I also hope perhaps you're thinking about the vision of what am I creating and helping my people design a life that's good for them? You know, I hope that not only are you envisioning that for your company, but also for yourself personally. And Kate, I've seen you do that. You mentioned earlier leaving town this summer to go on a trip with your family. I mean, that's wonderful. You're designing your life. You're being very intentional. 
Well, what about, are you creating those same opportunities for your people? Are you helping them? You're modeling it great. Are they watching you? But do they think, oh, well, that's only for the CEO. I can't necessarily think about that. I can't design my own life. Well, actually, what if you could? And talk about a way to keep talent and attract talent. And so there's so many things you could say as a CEO and COO, but I think just remembering that you know, let, get great people to execute, but remember your job is to continue to think about where are we going? How are we gonna get there? Where are we going? How are we gonna get there? And then what does it feel like on the journey? Yeah. You know, if you have a wake behind you as a leader, you know, like a ship has a wake behind it. If you have a wake behind you, have you ever turned around and looked back at the end of a project and kind of just check the pulse of your people? How are they doing? Are they in the ditch, exhausted, burned out? Are they actually right behind you saying, that was awesome, let's do it again? What kind of pace, what kind of environment, what kind of recognition, what kind of encouragement are you giving those people? What wake are you leaving behind you is another thing to consider as a CEO executive leader. And then you want to think about the mid-level managers too. How are they treating their people? They're probably a little bit newer at it. Are they feeling the pressure? And so they put that pressure on their people or they have seen you say, okay, you know what? We're going to figure it out. We may not know exactly how to do it, and we're kind of uncertain about how all this is going to play out, but we have such confident uncertainty that we've got the right people around us that we're going to figure it out. We're going to figure out how to make it better tomorrow. You know, we might be in the ditch right now, but yeah. you know what? We've got the right people to get out of the ditch, get back on the road. And I think that's a really special thing that you want to be thinking about as an executive. It's really good. Thank you. Uh, thanks for breaking those down, too. I, I, I really liked what you said about bystanders, advocates. Did you say the first one was reasonable critics? Yes, yeah. you want to have reasonable critics. For if you sure. have unreasonable critics, one thing years ago a mentor told me, say, you know, you want to be very mindful of how you engage with people. And if someone's in a place, and not trying to treat them as a villain or a bad person, but they just might not be in a place that they're not even open. They just yeah. needed to criticize, and that's just kind of where they are right yeah. now. They're not going to be reasonable. You cannot reason with an unreasonable person. Yeah. So maybe give them time to become reasonable, or maybe you just agree that they're going to hate me forever, or whatever. Don't necessarily engage with them. But often, there are critics that are reasonable. And at first, when you hear them come at you, you're like wanting to put up the barriers of protection. You know, your yeah, brain's sure. yelling it's at you, get out of there, they're horrible. <laughs> yeah. But if you can kind of get curious really quick, there's actually a fun thing I got to do about a year ago. I had 70 hours of continuing education and conversational intelligence. And this fascinating woman had developed this whole thing with neuroscience and biology and neurochemistry. And it was just fascinating. I totally geeked out and totally went there. <laughs> but one of the interesting things she said that I would share with my students and often with leaders is, all of us have this neurochemistry going on, and it's amazing how our brains are created. And we have different parts of our brains that weigh in on decisions in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you've heard of flight or flight, fight or flight, and so that's the quickest one to respond. And so when a critic comes at you, immediately cortisol is pumping through your brain. And pretty quick, you're going to have a hard time getting to your critical thinking skills because your body's just yelling at you, it's yeah. a bear, it's about to eat you, run, <laughs> yeah. and it, can't, it doesn't feel the same, even if it's just a critic, right? But if you can really, really quickly ask yourself a question and get into curiosity, it actually interrupts that flood of cortisol and then oxytocin comes in. And that's where you, it actually helps you be creative, be a problem solver, mm -hmm. be willing and open to maybe learn from this critic, no matter how harsh they may be. Instead of being like defensive and sure. wanting to pull back, lean in. What if you could lean in with a great question and say, clearly you're upset. I want to learn what's going on. Tell me more. And that's the last yeah. thing your brain wants to hear is yeah. tell me more criticism. Awesome. Yeah. 
But what if you could get into curiosity? Because if you can get into curiosity, it's a powerhouse. It gets, keeps you out of fear and judgment. Because kind of our, our um, default, if you will, is fear and judgment because that protects us. It keeps us alive. That's another way that we're created in such a fabulous, amazing way. It's the first option is if you're not alive, nothing else matters. So your brain's going to keep you alive, right? <laughs> yeah. So if you can get curious, those things that are overwhelming to you, kind of like those back to those questions of Andy Stanley. That's why that's so brilliant. It gets you into curiosity, not fear. Because right now, there's a lot probably legitimately to be fearful of. You know, there's a lot of significant obstacles that we've never seen before. So it's okay to be fearful and even maybe judgmental, you know? I even kind of chuckle a little bit, even with planning a wedding with my daughter this summer. It was interesting, the questions I would receive from people regarding what we were going to do to keep people safe at the wedding. Are you even going to have it? Indoor, outdoor, all these questions. And instead of feeling like I was being pummeled, which some days I did, I just tried to get curious. I tried to really understand what they were really asking versus assuming. Yeah. And so by me getting curious, it really made that process much easier. What things come at you where you automatically go to fear and judgment? It's a natural human thing we do. Your neurochemistry is driving it in your yeah. brain. But what if you could interrupt it? Yeah. And you could just think, okay, how can I be curious right now? Let that be your mantra. Yeah. Okay, curiosity, curiosity. What question can I ask? And hopefully if they're a reasonable critic, they will hear that question and that might get them out of their cortisol flood because maybe they're coming at you out of fear and judgment. Mm. And if you can get them into curiosity, they might have a conversation with you and you may even turn a reasonable critic into a bystander. And who knows, maybe an advocate. Yeah. An unreasonable critic, if they just keep coming at you and coming at you and they're not willing to get into curiosity, I mean, just not be the right time. Maybe give them some time to cool yeah. off, come back in a few days later. Or you just choose maybe to set a boundary and you just realize, okay, I think we're just going to agree to disagree and probably not worth my time to engage yeah. here. The really fun thing about thinking about these categories in, in an organizational setting is you're actually getting to deal you know, with real people face-to-face -face and in real relationship. Like I managed a handful of, of, of political kind of Facebook accounts and I mean, it's just impossible. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like everyone's an unreasonable critic in, in my opinion now. Uh, but the fun thing about leading an organization and working in the context of a team is that those are real relationships and, you know, much easier to do than in where most of us spend our time, which is on our phones or, you know, Facebook or whatever. So really, really good stuff. Um, how, how do you approach failure? Do you, do you have a, a, a process in which you go through when you've experienced failure in order to learn from it? Maybe what are some things you've observed over 20 years of observing other leaders? You know, feel free to answer it in any way you want. But just, you know, generally speaking, you know, what, how, what do you think of failure? How do you approach it? How do you learn from it? What, what, what is your method there? Yeah, well, great question. Failure is a big word, too. And everybody kind of, again, has their own definition of it. What I've noticed, when I was in high school, for example, we mentioned I grew up at New Deal, big basketball player. So your mom being yep. a coach, oh, yeah, tons of heritage of basketball in New Deal. So I remember early years of failure was a coach yelling at me. Mm. I missed a shot or the ball got stolen from me. Or, you know, that was just the feedback I got. Yellers, you know, yeah. people who yell. You know, that was just kind of normal. That's what coaches do, right? Yeah. And, and not that that's bad. You know, it's totally a strategy and you got to be loud at a game. So that was early on and it almost led me to, or a grade on a paper from a teacher. You know, that's the feedback you're getting. You're like, I failed, you know, and some people think they failed because they made an F. Some people think they failed because they made a 98 and not 100, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so they really kind of opened the door to the perfectionism that I think a lot of people struggle with and this idea of what does success even look like. And so over the years, I've noticed a shift, and I think a good shift, because people have gotten a little more savvy about innovation. And especially successful companies, they actually reward failure. They embrace it. They think it's part of the process. 
recently I heard some speakers, there was these consultants and they were speaking during the pandemic, but they said, we actually do this kind of stuff all the time with companies. And they gave a great case study. And I wish I could remember the company. It might've been Google. It was a huge company. I, I need to go back and look. But what they do, they intentionally set up experiments mm -hmm. and they talk about the power of experimenting. And since I came from higher education, you know, a professor, we do yeah. research all the time, but in the industry, maybe you don't think about it that way. And they said, if you can really get in your mind that these are a series of experiments, it's almost like you're predicting a good percentage of them are going to fail. This is normal. We have to normalize failure, right? So they talk about how they got 168 teams. So this is a huge company. They had 168 different teams with projects and they funded them. They gave them each a set of dollars cross-functional teams and said, play with this for a while, let's see what you think. And so after maybe two or three months, they come swing back around and they always, this is their rhythm, half of them get cut right off the bat. The other half get more money to play for another three months. Mm -hmm. And then after that time, 75% get cut. And, nope, they get to 25%. So after the start of 168 ideas, at the end of this process that might last about a year, maybe two, they have three ideas. Mm -hmm. But everybody gets credit for them because they say this was part of the process. If we didn't have number 167 that failed, right. we would have never gotten these three amazing, remarkable things. And so people who were on the teams that maybe didn't get selected aren't demoralized or feel like they're losers or feel like, what a waste of time. They appreciate that that was part of the process. And then the next time, they may be on the team that gets picked because now they're full of confidence. They're full of, okay, I'm not gonna get fired if I take a risk. Mm -hmm. They may take more risks. They may be even more crazy innovative and not play it safe because they experienced, okay, that was okay. Okay, now what are we gonna go for? And that's the rhythm. And I thought, how interesting. And so even for me with retiring, uh, I kind of had an idea of what I might do. And then the pandemic hit. And like many people, you kind of rolled out carpet and you rolled it right back up. Yeah. And now we're kind of rolling it back out. But what they said that I, that I think intrigued me the most, and I've heard it from several speakers, like, look, you don't have to bet the farm. Even though one company, um, Loctite, it's a super glue. They actually bet the farm on a Super Bowl commercial to save their company, and it worked. I don't know if y'all have ever seen that commercial or heard about that case study, but it's crazy what they did, and it worked for them. But not everybody's gonna bet the farm on one ad. Mm. You're gonna do a series of small experiments. And I'm sure you do this with your clients. You have social media, small experiment. That doesn't cost a lot of money necessarily versus a Super Bowl ad. So what in your life as a leader, what in your teams, I would hope as an innovative company, each one of your teams or maybe your areas, what if you told them, what is one experiment that you could go for in the next quarter? You know, sometimes companies kind of plan out quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, quarter four. What if you could go to your teams, maybe your lower level leaders or managers saying, hey, I bet you've had some ideas looking around here. What if, want to, I want you to take one of these ideas, grab a couple of people who you might wanna be on this team to flesh it out, and I want you, I'm gonna give you 10 hours a week, I'm gonna give you this dollar amount. You know, give them permission and create space for them. Don't make it an extra job on top of all of their other responsibilities. Create space for creativity and innovation. Wouldn't it be so cool to see what might emerge? Not giving them any agenda. Hey, you probably have had an idea around here. What do you think? Yeah. And so a piece of this experimenting and failure was another, Lisa Turkhurst is actually an author and speaker, and I actually heard her speak at a business conference, and I had never seen her in this space before. I've seen her in lots of other spaces, but she actually was speaking at this very elite business type conference, and I was like, how interesting is this? And so she comes in and she says, I'm gonna talk to you about innovation, but I'm gonna use a word you perhaps you've never heard before or thought about before. And before I even tell you the word, for me, I'm gonna tell you there's two Forbes articles 
that discuss this, and there's been researchers at premier institutions that have researched this from a business perspective. And she said the word is forgiveness. And if you search in Forbes, they talk about how forgiveness is becoming one of the leading traits because if you have any type of, going back to this psychological safety idea, if there's any underlying animosity or jealousy or envy with your team members and people resenting the fact that they got the resources and you didn't, it kills innovation. Mm -hmm. And the articles in Forbes magazine were fascinating, talking about how they even measured it was so interesting, the questions they even asked employees. And I thought, isn't that interesting that as a CEO leader, part of your culture, what does forgiveness look like? And that seems like a spiritual term, but it's very much a business strategic term. Who maybe at a meeting was thought they were being funny and sarcastic and they actually hurt this person's feelings and they took it personal. Maybe they shouldn't have taken it personal, but maybe that was a pretty harsh thing and you don't have the relational capital to give them a hard time in that way yet and they didn't realize it. What about miscommunication? That happens all the time, right? I keep mentioning that we have these different dictionaries in our head. And the other way I see that kind of coming up and creating conflict and stress in an organization is extroverts and introverts, something as simple as that. You know, what's so interesting is extroverts, the way I define that is, it depends how you get your energy back and it's how you process information. So for me, I actually need to be by myself a little bit to get my energy back at the end of the day, yet I am completely an extrovert in the way I process information and want to problem solve. So you can ask yourself the question, if you're sitting in a room and you have someone leading a meeting and they throw out a question, are you one that likes to think about it first? And this is on average, it may depend on the context, but just in general, are you one that kind of jumps in and starts talking about it? Or are you one that wants to think about it first before you say anything out loud? And what's so interesting, both of those things are doing the same thing. The introvert's just thinking about all the ideas, the extrovert saying them all out loud. But if you have an introvert, let's say you're a leader and you're an extrovert, and you have a direct report who's an introvert, and you're, as an extrovert, you start processing all these ideas. The introvert is thinking those are their list of duties that they have to do. Because an introvert usually won't say anything out loud until it's a plan. As an extrovert, you don't even remember all the things you're saying <laughs> because you're just processing. Just like the introvert doesn't remember every single thought that they thought to come up with their one idea. An, ex an external processor will say all kinds of stuff and not even remember what they say. But if you're an introvert listening to your leader, you're taking notes, you're trying to grab it all because you think that's the plan. How often does that happen in organizations where someone's worked really hard on something and they take it back to their boss and their boss says, why are you even doing that? Talk about conflict and discouragement and a waste of energy and time and talent and confusion and that takes so much energy. And would they hold a grudge against their leader? Or would they forgive them and say, okay, got it. Now that I'm aware that you're an extrovert, I know. And as extroverts, if you're processing out loud and they don't know that, you could even say, hey guys, just so you know, none of this is a plan. I'm just talking out loud here. This is just kind of how I get to the final result. If you're an introverted leader and you have an external processor um, direct report, be patient with them. If you really want the great juicy ideas out of them, they're going to have to get through a lot of words before they get there. And you may be rolling your eyes going, oh, they're wearing me out. I can't do this. <laughs> but just be aware that those that's a dynamic. And even with your kids, if you have families, I, my dad was an external processor before I had this knowledge and awareness. And I can remember there were times I would be so sad and disappointed. I was like, but dad, you said, you said we would get to do this. And he'd be like, what are you talking about? No, I didn't. And we'd be like, no, you said. And so even as a parent, Think about your kids. You know, think about your kids. Are they external processors? Are they internal processors? 
how is that dynamic going at home as well? So, so much to talk about around that. But when she said the word forgiveness, it's like it sparked this whole different perspective of how that can be a strategic initiative. It could be a core value. It could be, you know, just part of your culture to actually talk about that. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, we don't hold grudges. We want to respectfully and professionally get stuff out in the light. So stuff doesn't kind of stew under the surface because we, we don't want that in our culture. How do you make that psychologically safe for someone to maybe confront someone with something or say, hey, I'm not trying to be a baby and I'm not trying to be a wimp, but I did not appreciate when you said that in that meeting. How do you do that in a really healthy way? Yeah. And companies that can figure that out, man, where you can get candid feedback, radically candid feedback, whoa. Yeah, it's really good. We've ex- yeah, we if we have experienced that in our own way. I mean, having a chief of staff who really gets to prioritize relationships and and really open candid conversations, you know, I've never thought of it in this terms, but it literally creates psych- psychologically secure environments for people to be able to be whoever they are in that moment, whether it's frustrated or upset or whatever. And then um, yeah, and then earlier you used the word having a teachable spirit when you were talking about you know some some aspects of what's really important for leaders. We do that really imperfectly, but you know we at least strive for it. So it's fascinating how all these things kind of work together when you talk about failure, when you think about forgiveness, when you think about psychologically secure environments, when you think about teachable spirit, like a lot of these things kind of merge together. And the more of these really critical things that you can do, you know, consistently and regularly, the more, uh, likely you are to create an environment that's really healthy. So it's all really good. How do you approach your own personal growth? You know, you taught classes for a long time. You've been involved, you know, with trying to nurture and help and equip and coach other leaders. So what what are the types of things you do, really practically speaking, uh, to, to nurture and to foster your own personal growth as a leader? Yeah, I um, learned, I think it's helpful because strength finders is a common thing that lots of people know about. And one of my top five is learner. And so I think I just instinctively love to learn. I'm curious. I'm just, I I get in conversations with people and I just ask all these questions because I'm just so intrigued with how things work and how people function and the choices they make and the stories they have. And so I think that helps that I'm part of my personal growth because I do have that desire Mm -hmm. and just kind of a natural way of doing that. I love to read. I'm a voracious reader. I love podcasts. I like webinars. And really, I think a lot of that came from, even in graduate school, when we would do research, a lot of, we would do focus groups and we try to figure out the gap between intention and behavior. That was really my doctoral work for this long old dissertation we did, um, was really just looking at what is the gap between intention and behavior? We have all these great intentions, but sometimes we just don't do them. Mm -hmm. And then we even ask ourselves, we're like, why didn't I do that? I totally meant to do that. What happened? I blinked and a year went by and I still haven't done that. What's up with that? So I've always kind of been curious about that specific thing, and it, whether it be marketing or leadership or management. And so I'm kind of drawn to those types of things. And so for my own personal growth, you probably won't, find, like I even have a book in my bag right now. You probably won't find me too many places without a book in my bag. Yeah. It's just something I just do. You know, yeah. I just am curious. I want to learn more. Um, I also think that pace is important. Um, several years ago, I was part of a program I mentioned earlier with John Townsend, and I think that was one of the bigger ahas that I noticed with those other executives in the room is they did not create space for personal growth. They were just putting out fires. They were running ahead, and they they said, well, that would be great if I could go listen to a podcast or read a book, but right now I'm trying to make payroll. I mean, that's awesome, Kathy, but seriously, how do we do that? And so, or even John Townsend, they were asking him, and just listening to those CEOs of those companies ask these really candid questions of, well, sure, it'd be great to do all that, but hello, I've got a client that's about to cancel and they're 80% of our revenue. I've got to go fix that. You know, they felt like they were always, 
having to be on. They didn't have the luxury of relaxing. They were having to just push and strive and go, go, go. And that may be in seasons very relevant and very appropriate. Yet if you can't figure out a way to have some places where you can grow, where you can just think. You know, Bill Gates, I was watching something and I think he has what he calls Think Week. And once a week he goes off by himself with his tons of books and he has no agenda other than to think. He'll read some books, but he'll just think. And I thought, now granted, we're not all have that luxury. But I thought, but what does that look like for you? And recently, Marcus Buckingham's been doing a lot of research on resilience. Mm -hmm. And that's part of resilience is do you have a way to grow? And your brain wants to. Your brain's going to get bored and burned out if you're not creating space to grow. So for me, it's being with good people. It's being having my own personal set of directors who I can go to with thoughts and challenges and get their feedback and learn from them. Get, and I try really hard also to get people who are different than me to give me their thoughts. It's real easy and comfortable for me to ask my friends what they think because I think they'll tell me what I want to hear. And my some of the people that I've been blessed to surround myself with, they're the ones that are going to ask me the really hard questions. I had someone ask me a question back in 2014 that really challenged me and it actually led to me facing that I was avoiding doing something that I knew would be great. I just knew it'd be hard and it was outside of my expertise, if you will. And that's led to a courageous, a series of books called Courageous Leaders of Faith and Men and Women of Faith. And I didn't want to do it, (laughs) but they kept asking me the hard questions. And I realized the reason I didn't want to do it is because it was going to be hard. And that was very unusual for me. I wasn't afraid of hard work. And I wasn't, I mean, if you give me a challenge, I'm like, oh, game on, let's go. It's going down. (laughs) But for some reason, this one pocket of my life, I was avoiding and they called me out on it. And so I think personal growth looks a lot of different for other people. I know quite a few leaders that reading is not their thing. I give an assessment to people, my clients, and one of the things that measures is how does, it's how your brain is wired to do work. And one of the things that measures is how does information, how do you absorb information? How do you communicate the information? How do you receive the information and how does it stick in your mind? Which is very helpful for students, but also for when you're giving instructions to employees or clients or just in communication. And so some people, like my son-in-law, I love saying that now, my (laughs) son-in-law. My son-in-law, he says, if I can listen and I don't have to take notes, don't make me take notes. If I can just listen and focus in, I've got it which I'm jealous of. Yeah, for, sure. for me, if I listen, I hear it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I want to circle back around to that. But I want a pen in my hand because yeah. writing it helps it get in my head. And reading helps it get in my head. Other people, reading is like, you know, they. I had a friend, she said, what's up with people saying leaders are readers? It's like, I feel guilty. It's like I'm a closet leader because I hate to read. Well, reading is not her learning channel. Yeah. But if she can listen, She's got it. I'm yeah. like, hey, audiobooks totally count. Yeah. They totally count. Yeah. Or watching someone, modeling someone, interviewing someone, interacting with someone, that counts too. So again, you want to figure out for yourself what personal growth looks like for you. That's kind of what it looks like for me. Another interesting thing on personal growth, I think I would call it this. Recently, um, again, John Townsend, I was on a webinar with him, and he was kind of sharing with us his formula for not getting burned out. And I think part of personal growth is not only becoming a better leader, being willing to leap to that new learning curve. That's a big piece Mm -hmm. of it. Another big piece of it is just to have self-awareness and lead yourself in a way that you kind of know when you're getting burned out, when you're getting drained. A huge piece of the work that I do now with leaders is around energy and thinking through. It's not necessarily about time and minutes. There is a quantity reality to that for sure. But a big piece of this is your energy and focus. Do you know yourself well enough? Like with my students, 
you know, a really easy way to figure it out. Who's a morning person? Who's a night person? Do, if you know that you're a night person, do your homework then. If you know you're a morning person, do your homework then. Be savvy about your most important tasks. And when your body naturally focuses in, don't try to battle your body on that. Be mindful of that. Another thing is, you know, we're a whole person. We're not a machine. Often you can get so busy in task mode, I call it, that you kind of treat. And I had a season like that. I was a machine. I was producing. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. It's all about efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. How much can I cram on the calendar? How much can I fit in? Oh, yeah, we'll take on that one more project. It's like, seriously? that Really? And so, but I was just like, it was almost like a game, to, not a game, but a challenge. It's like, oh, I bet we could fit that in. Like, I was proud of it almost. And I was. And then later I realized the wake I was leaving behind me, people were tired and worn out. So it's part of personal growth. Learn more about yourself. You know, how are you, you know, we're, again, we're not, we're not machines. We're human beings. So you have a spiritual component. You have a physical component, emotional physical. I even added one recently, the more I think about this, the social component, especially with so many things going on, you know, even with our wedding, so many of the decisions I made were really more about how will this play out in the social realm versus even the physical realm. We felt like we could keep people safe, but we wanted to be mindful of what is this, how will people feel about this socially? It's this big social experiment we're in right now of how are we going to all interact? And so What's your tank look like? Like physically, what does your tank look like? I kind of tell clients all the time, I check in with them once a month. I was like, okay, tell me your percentages. And it's almost like a tank on a car. You know, it doesn't, if it's almost empty, it still runs. You know, if your cell phone, my students tell me, all the time, I'm like, if your cell phone has red on it with the battery, you are not messing around. You are looking for a plug. You're not gonna mess around with that. So what are those, what are those in each of your different areas of your life? How do you know when the warning light is on that you're almost out of gas in those different areas of your life? And then do you know yourself well enough to know? How do you fill them back up? Mm-hmm. So part of my personal growth, actually reading fills me back up. Running fills me back up. I think you got, you got to get outside. Steve and I are about to go to Colorado, and I cannot wait yeah. to get in nature. So, But you got to figure out what that is for you. Don't compare yourself to others and think, oh, it's got to look like that. Yeah. You want to have the confidence and self-awareness to know what it is for you. And that's a really important thing. So... Marcus Buckingham, so back to this formula, right, that I was talking about earlier. So with Mark and Marcus Buckingham and John Townsend, so he said, you in a, in a workplace, you have responsibilities. Really, in all facets of your life, you have responsibilities. So you have a responsibility. And then he kind of makes it like a fraction. So you didn't know we were talking math today. But let's say there's responsibility on the top, and there's resources on the bottom. He said, you want that ratio to be pretty close to one if you can. You know, your responsibilities that you have to get things done are pretty close to the resources you have available to you. Well, we all know that often that gets goes sideways fast. You have more responsibility than you have resources. Right. That's very common. And how do you get that closer to that one? Well, you have to get creative and curious, right? Because you may not have the luxury of more money. We have a budget. You know, the reality is, yeah, we're down 20% this quarter and we're trying to make payroll and you're asking for more money to take on this new initiative. Awesome. Because we've given you more responsibility, but we don't have any more money to give you. And I see that a lot with leaders, especially executive leaders. They want to take care of their people. You know, there's a famous book, Leaders Eat Last. A lot of leaders give so much to their team and they don't really fill in their own cup. They're not giving themselves resources and they're headed for burnout and stress. And it's hard to make wise decisions when you're exhausted. And so you want to be creative about what are those resources. So it could be money. It could be technology. It could be getting with um, creating partnerships. That's resources. The one that I think I work with the most with these leadership groups 
is who are your who's your personal board of directors? Who are the people that are safe people for you that you can go and talk to candidate? You don't have to be on. You don't have to be you know this amazing leader that your people are looking up to and you can't show any weakness or. And actually, that's getting better too. I think leaders are learning. It's okay if your people see your weakness because I want to follow someone that has a limp because I feel like they're telling me the truth yeah. and not hiding stuff. But or you can be like me and have so many weaknesses. It doesn't <laughs> matter how hard you try, how hard you try to hide them. You just let it all out. Yeah. Let it all out. So what can you do for your people when they come to you and say, I'm really overwhelmed? Ask them about that ratio. How do you feel about the amount of responsibility you have and the resources we've given you? And maybe they actually know where the holes are. And maybe they ask you, and you may not be able to give them everything, but maybe you could put them with a partner or you could actually create a project where you get another resource in because you know, oh, you know what? Sarah over here in this department, she actually has had that experience before. I'm going to create some space in her schedule to give you, give you a couple hours and you can just pick her brain. Mm -hmm. Even that's a resource. So you want to be very mindful of the resources you have available that you may not have thought of. And don't despair thinking, well, great, this is an awesome ratio that's impossible to reach because we don't have just cash growing on trees. Yeah. It's not always money. Relationships are a powerhouse on resourcing. And so if you can figure out a way to even look in your life, I had a season in my life where it was kind of interesting. I worked with mostly men because I was in business. My clients were men. I was on different boards. And I, I won't say I was like the only woman, but I was sure. often one of a few. And so one day my husband picked up my phone He's my technology guy. It's so awesome to have a technology guy. He's my technology guy. So he's just looking at my phone and he said, and this was probably about 10 years ago and maybe 12. And he said, what's up with all your text messages? Where are your girlfriends? And I was like, he wasn't jealous. He knew sure. them all. You know, we were, were careful, you know, guardrails and all that. But he just, he just made a passing comment. And I was like, huh, I'm going to think about that. And so I just kind of started focusing on that and thinking about that. And pretty soon the most amazing, remarkable women started coming into my life. And I look back today and I'm just amazed at what that has led to. And so you might even think about, and it may not even be a gender thing, it may be an experience thing, it may be an expertise thing, it may be a spiritual thing. You know, for me, I'm, I happen to be a Christian and I want people in my life that I, that I can ask questions to about that too, you know, yeah. not just business. And so I try to follow people that are already have a lifestyle that I really admire and I think, I wonder how they figured that out whether it's parenting or business or, and so it's so refreshing to have all different ages. One of my mentors, she's 86 and she, she's awesome. Her name's Arlita. Oh my goodness. And she may not be 86. I should get that number right. She may be offended that I'm making her older than she is, but I have another friend that's 92. If she listens to the primitive yeah. podcast. Arlita, sorry, I'm making serious you trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but I have another one. She's 92 and she is so physically fit that's and great. she is, a, she is a force in leadership. And so and then I have men who are also in my life. So on your resources, get really savvy about and shrewd even about what are the resources out there and are we fully engaging in those and how can I give those to my team? And it may not cost you even one cent. Kind of going back to the energy idea, there are some things, have you ever had a conversation with someone or spent time with someone and like two hours blew by and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm late for work. I, I got, sorry, this was a great lunch, but it felt like 30 minutes. It just went so fast. And at the end of that conversation, even though it might've been a lot of time, you felt energized. You got a great reward back, your return. You know, it's almost like putting money in the stock market and getting a great return. Maybe not now, but you know, yeah. that does happen sometimes. And so same with your time. If I invested this time with this person and the return I got filled my cup, it gave me more energy. There's people like that. 
And I don't know about you, but I wonder if sometimes we're around people and after five minutes you need to go lay down. It's felt like five hours. Yeah. Maybe client, I mean, that's actually a legitimate thing. So pay attention to that. And what if you don't have the money to hire another person, but what if you got really smart about the projects and you actually asked your people, which one of these projects energize you? Which ones drain you? We all have projects that drain us. So sometimes there's work that it'll drain sure. everybody. So we all have to take a turn. Right. But what if you could get smart and savvy and kind of reallocate where the projects go and you really are leaning into where people love to do it and they have more energy in it, it gives them energy back, you'll get so much more productivity and you didn't even need another full-time person. And they're happier, they're more engaged, they're excited, production's through the roof, you didn't have to spend more money. So many rewards to that. So this, this notion of energy is a big one. Yeah, it's really good stuff. Really good. Okay, last question for you. So if you could speak to your younger self, you know, if you could go back 20 years ago and, you know, knowing what you know now, what, what's some advice you'd give yourself, you know, going back 20 years? I think a mantra that I've, I've learned and I wish I knew then was relax in the process. I tend to be... Um, Another strength finders I have is Activator. And so I'm like Captain Activator with a short time frame span. I want everything done yesterday (laughs) and let's go, let's get it done, let's get it done. And so sometimes with that in my kind of work style, if you will, I would feel I put so much pressure on myself to figure it out. And I think I also had a very narrow definition of what success looked like, almost perfectionism. I'd say I probably may be a recovering perfectionist. Excellence is, is wonderful. Excellence is what we're striving for. Perfectionism does not serve us well at all. And I think it took me a while to figure that out. And so <clears throat> I think the idea of so many things that decisions that we make are processes. And so if I can relax in the process, and recently I was talking to, it's interesting, even though I've retired from teaching at the university, so many college students still cross my path and it's so awesome. They're some of my favorite people. I still get to talk to them and just listen and kind of be an advisor maybe a little bit, mentor. But one of them I was talking to about this idea of relaxing in the process. And I knew that she liked to ski. And I'm, I'm a very, I ski, but I'm not like a black diamond person. Sure. <laughs> but I said, I remember trying to learn how to ski and it wasn't a very hard slope and I was so tense. It was like I was stiff and they were telling me to turn and like my knees were barely bent and I was like, you know, snow plowing. They're like, no, don't do that. I'm like, ah. So then I would like go one way and then I'd stop and then I'd turn my skis, physically pick up the skis and turn them the other way and kind of go. And I was so stiff and I was so focused on figuring it out. I couldn't look around and enjoy the scenery. I couldn't enjoy the beauty of nature. I couldn't even enjoy the process of learning because I was so stiff and so determined to figure it out. And, and I said, then... The instructor was smart and said, hey, I just we're just gonna try something. We're gonna go to the top of the hill and I'm just gonna connect you to me and you're gonna get to look around and I'm gonna make sure. And the other thing back to failure, I was afraid to fall down. I was like, okay, I'm gonna figure out the skiing and I am not gonna fall down. Well, hello, everybody knows that if you're gonna learn how to ski, you're gonna fall down, right? A couple of times. You don't tell you know, a little toddler, yeah. oh, you fell down, I guess walking's not for you. You know, who says that? Nobody, yeah. but how often do we do that to ourselves? with the pressure we put on ourselves to do it perfectly the first time or not allow the process. We've got to be able to relax in the processes because that again gets us into curiosity. When we're so tense and putting so much stress on ourselves to figure it out and have all the answers and to do everything perfectly and not get criticized and not, you know, maybe I didn't want to get criticized because it reminded me of my yelling coach. You know, who knows the reasons why we do this, the protection and the walls we might even put up. 
But if we can relax in the process and get curious, give ourselves some grace. You know, I think sometimes, and we're not always quick to give grace to others, but that's something else I've told myself, give grace first. We all tell ourselves stories in our heads of why something may be true, and the brain hates uncertainty. And so, but if you see something you're not quite sure, your brain's irritated. And so you'll fill in the blanks and you'll actually get a neurochemical reward for filling in the gaps of the story, even if the story's not true. Mm -hmm. And so I caught myself telling myself these ridiculous stories. I could have gone to LA, Kate, and done movies. I mean, some of the stories (laughs) I came up with of why something might be true were just ridiculous. And so I really caught myself. And if someone cuts me off in traffic, I'm like, they must be on the way to the hospital. I give grace first. I assume the best. We tend to assume the worst. And if I can catch myself, and I've done them, it's taken a while. I've been doing this for several years. But now I do catch myself, and now it's become a habit if I just assume the best in people. A rude retail clerk. You know, I must have just caught him on a bad day. I I mean, I've had, I ask myself, have you ever been rude to someone? Well, yeah, Kathy, you have. You've had a bad day too, so give some grace. Kathy, have you ever been afraid so much that you might have criticized someone? Yeah, I've probably done that. I'm going to give some grace. So, But then the flip side of that is often we hold ourselves to such a high standard that we don't give ourselves grace. You know, some of the things that people will say to themselves are just horrible. They would never say that to somebody else. What in the world? And even my daughters growing up would say things out loud. I'm like, your brain's listening. And it actually is a thing with brain chemistry. The audio is coming in, even if you're the one saying it. It's not just... The thoughts you have, when you say something out loud, your brain may believe it and make that the new truth and create a pathway in your brain that that seems to be what it believes. And so it's just fascinating how all that comes together. So I think the idea of giving grace first, relaxing in the process, has served me really, really well. And I think also I would say be open to what success might look like. You know, if you had told me, I kind of knew that I wanted to be a professor. My mom was a professor, amazing mentor in my life too. And so I thought everybody got their PhDs. I didn't know that that was kind of a thing. You know, if I had realized earlier, maybe I wouldn't have been in school for eight years after, <laughs> after you know, high school. But I, I loved getting to, you know, be a professor and, and getting to be innovative. And LCU gave me so many opportunities to create experiences for students. You know, we took students to China on consulting trips. We went to Italy. We went to Atlanta, we, all these amazing experiences. And I feel like now I'm getting to do that now with leaders. And so I think just being open to going for stuff. And you may not know exactly how it's going to work out. I had some students say, well, we're going to come get in your master's program, but we need two international experiences within the program. And I said, okay. I had no idea exactly what it would look like. But even in that uncertainty, I had confident uncertainty that I had the right kind of, I mean, I may not know exactly what it's going to look like, but I was confident that I could find the right people that could show us the way. And I want to challenge all leaders to think about that. You may have no idea how this is going to play out, whatever initiative you may be going after or whatever company you're trying to start. Or maybe you're a new leader and you just now just got two direct reports and you're trying to figure out what you're doing and you want to do a good job, but you've never done that before. I just want to encourage you to lean into that uncertainty and not be afraid of it. Be curious about it. And tell yourself, I, have, I may not have any idea exactly how this is going to go, but I do have confidence that there are good people out there who I can get help from and are going to help me figure it out. And it's, it's going to be good. It may not look like what I think it's going to look like, but that's okay because I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to get comfortable. The other one last thing I would say is the middle place. I don't know if you've heard that term before, 
But leaders often are tasked with, okay, we're gonna get people or a project from point A to point B. That's kind of our project, that's our task as a leader. Maybe get people from A to B. And what's interesting is at the beginning at point A, it's exciting, it's new, let's go, we're gonna charge them, let's do it. And then point B, you're celebrating, yes! <laughs> I ran one, well, I ran two marathons, Kate. I know you're a big um, runner. My first and my last on the same day. Because that point two at the end of the race, that's a thing, people. That point two is no joke. So anyway, so the B, usually you're excited. Oh, we persevered. We did it. We're almost done. But mile 14, 15, 16, it was like... Middle is brutal. What am I doing? That's the middle place yeah. for any project, any initiative. That middle place is messy. It's also, I talked earlier about a learning curve. When you begin the learning curve, you make the leap. It's exciting. I'm doing something new. And then when you get to the top of it, you're like, okay. But in that middle place, it's messy. I don't like messy. I don't like making mistakes. I do not like making mistakes. But you've got to make friends with mistakes if you're going to learn, if you're going to grow, if you're going to be innovative. You've got to make friends with that. Also in the middle place, you're still trying to get your bearings. The ground may not feel all that solid. There's lots of moving parts. You know, the, the famous thing, VUCA, you know, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. I mean, what in the world? I've got to figure all these things out in this new space. You're probably doing things you've not done before. And it just is messy. And so going back to giving yourself grace and also knowing that there's a subtle difference between me. Well, some would say a huge difference. I kind of say it's more subtle because I feel like you go back and forth between management and leadership. I think management is where you're executing things. Leadership is you're trying to figure out what you're doing. And in times of uncertainty, that is when leadership is needed more than ever. You know, sometimes when you have processes and procedures and, you know, protocols and you have a rhythm, you know, you're, you're basically executing the plan. That tends to lean more, a little bit more toward management. Leadership is, are we even headed the right direction? Right. All this uncertainty, that's where leadership's needed the most. And so... Just one little encouragement to all the leaders out there, and it's something that I, 20 years ago, would have loved to have someone tell me. Leadership, I have a friend, she uses this word, and it's kind of funny, she goes, she either says it's parenting or leadership, she goes, it ain't for sissies. I mean, it is, you can't, you have to know you're gonna have to have courage. You're gonna have to have perseverance. And, and I just wanna say that, especially in this really cool, unique time that we're in right now, leaders are tired. My clients are exhausted. Decision fatigue is at an all-time high because you work really hard, you get a good decision, you get a good kind of maybe even some minimum going, and the rug gets pulled out of you and out from under you again. And you're like, great. So all that work yesterday is for naught, and now we got to figure it out today. And probably you're going to have to figure it out again tomorrow. And that can get really discouraging, but if you can just tell yourself, I know I'm fatigued, I'm tired, I'm overwhelmed, I'm frustrated, Whatever word fits the blank, right? I just want to challenge you to lead anyway. I want to challenge you to shift from the idea of what if to even if. So instead of being afraid of the what ifs that are out there and are still coming, I think there's still a lot of what ifs coming. And that's just life, really. I mean, that, that's normal. If you can shift your thinking to even if, even if, our decisions are irrelevant tomorrow. Even if we have to figure out payroll or how we're gonna serve clients in this you know, world that we're in, even if 
I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm going to lead anyway. And we're going to try anyway. We're going to keep trying. Recently, um, someone in our community had a large event, one of the first live events with a large, with a larger crowd, more than like 10 or 15, you know, hundred people since March and almost nationwide. That took so much courage, so much gut wrenching perseverance and work and details. And it was wonderful. It's like, we have to try. There are things that everybody may be telling you is impossible, mm -hmm. but you have known in your gut that I think we might can figure it out. Go for it. Yeah. You've got to try. We've got to try. And again, remember, it's an experiment. If it fails, no big deal. At least you try. Yeah. That's better than, and maybe it's easier for me, Miss Activator, to say, sit on your hands and not do anything. <laughs> I mean, there's a time for that too. Sure. But I just want to say, lead anyway. Yeah. Lead anyway. It's what you do. It's who you are. You know, in adversity, that's what leaders do. And I want you to take on that identity, if you will, and say, whether you're a low-level leader, you're leading yourself, you're a CEO, lead anyway. Yeah. Even if, even if your worst fears come true, even if the challenges get hard, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to yeah. keep going. It's really good. Well, thanks for all your time. I have a whole page of notes here. So if we get, keep going, I have to flip it over and go to the back. Um, really, really appreciate you. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom and, and for taking the time to be with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Kate.